children who are going to go downstairs, go ahead and line up over here. It is true, all the adults in the house were sick. And while we now have come to an understanding of why Steph was sick, we still know why Andrew and I had to get sick for it also. (laughs) But... Next week, uh, we are starting a series in Galatians, so just want to remind you, put that out there in the very beginning, next week we're beginning a series in Galatians, and we will be camping out there for a good 18, 20 plus weeks, so um, it's going to be exciting, I have it pretty much mapped out, um, Andrew's actually going to be giving one of his first, well, his first sermon here in the next few weeks, so excited about that. Today, though, we are coming to the end of a series called The Five Solas, and uh, so I got my shirt, so I'm wearing it today. We, we ordered shirts, Andrew, Steph, and I did, and these were the shirts, because uh, they, they talk about the five solas, the gospel comes to us by grace alone, uh, let's see, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for God's glory alone, um, and mine never came to me until like the other day, and so... Uh, I hope I get all my money back for that. <laughs> but um, uh, we've been promoting or, or been, been talking about the five solas. Um, and what we've been talking about is that 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517, so this year, October 31st, 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door because the Roman Catholic Church had begun to deny the gospel. The Roman Catholic Church believed that Scripture alone um, had, the Roman Catholic Church had ceased to believe that Scripture alone was authority, but what they had done is begun to elevate the authority of the Pope and the councils, meaning the decisions and traditions of the church, to the level of infallibility, meaning they were the same as Scripture. They also denied Christ alone, that Christ alone achieved our salvation. They believed Jesus helps us but that we essentially need to save ourselves. As a result, they also denied grace alone and faith alone. They saw sin more as a sickness that with a little medicine, and the medicine was called our good works plus a little bit of God's grace, might equal salvation. And so the formula was Jesus plus my good works maybe will equal my salvation. There was no guarantee, there's no assurance. And just so you know, whenever you have a works-based salvation, there is never assurance with that because you're always wondering, have I done enough? And ultimately, what happened is because they denied these four solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, they also denied the fifth sola, which is what we're going to look at today, and that is God's glory alone. So in essence, what they had done is they began to make Christianity, they began to make the gospel more about man than about the glory of God. And in reality, we face that very much today. Churches all across America and throughout the world struggle with, are we going to glorify God or are we going to glorify man? The prosperity gospel is spreading all throughout other parts of the world and spreading greatly here in America. In fact, the largest churches in America are the prosperity gospel churches. If you turn on TV, majority of your TV preachers, I'm not going to say all, but almost all will be your prosperity gospel preachers. Um, 
Today, many churches are compromising on God's word so that they become more attractive to unbelievers. What that means is they're willing to compromise on the word and they therefore do not call sin, sin. What they have done is they're trying to make the gospel more palatable. They want it to be more friendly. They want it to be easily digestible. And therefore, we just choose not to talk about the things that are offensive or that because of sin, we are born under the wrath of God. In essence, what they're doing is they're saying, we we want to make man the priority within church. So we're going to make it as easy for man to understand the message. And if that means dumbing down the gospel, if that means lessening who God is, that's okay. Even in churches like ours, like Protestant-type churches today, uh, at the Protestant Reformation, uh, that's where we have Baptists, that's where we have Presbyterian, that's where we have Reformed churches stuff today. Um, We protested what the Catholic Church was doing at that day, and we still protest those things. And so we still hold grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory alone. But even in churches like this, we struggle to make sure we, we fight for glory alone. We do this sometimes when we get upset about coffee and we, we get upset about what kind of coffee we have or the type of music being sung, like the style. Do we have drums? Do we not have drums? Do they use a djembe? Do they not have a djembe? We have a bass guitarist and all these things. Um, what people wear, um, how long the sermons are, what color the carpet is or the chairs. It, easily we can become distracted from, we gather for the glory of God But then we go undistracted and we look at all the details and all these other things which morally are really of no no, uh, consequence. And so we also can struggle with this. One theologian said, glory alone can be understood as the glue that holds all the other solas in place or the center that draws the other solas into a grand unified whole. We might even say glory to God is the lifeblood of the solas. And so if that's true, then what that means is 500 years ago, the reformers, what they ultimately did was they reminded us that the gospel is not ultimately about you and me, but it's about God. And it's about what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we cannot overstate the importance of this sola. God's glory is the very ink in which every single word in your Bible is written in. From beginning to end, God's word proclaims the glory of our awesome holy God. When we compromise on this sola, the glory of God alone, we pervert the gospel into what is a false gospel. And when we get into Galatians, we're going to look at that a lot. But what happens is God's word becomes more about us than it does him. And when this happens, church becomes more about pleasing you and me than it does about God. Sermons become seven steps to a better life. Songs are about making you feel good. Your everyday life is about doing the things that you want for your happiness and your wealth without concern about God and what he desires. And so what we need today, just as they needed 500 years ago, is the reminder of the glory of God. And it's a reminder that we can never stop reminding ourselves with. We need to remind ourselves of who God is, why he does things, and that everything is done for the glory of God. John Piper calls the glory of God the continental divide in theology. He says, if you believe that everything is for the glory of God... 
all rivers of your thinking run towards God. If you do not, everything run towards man. And so before we begin, and we're going to be in Ephesians 3, so just, or Ephesians 1, verse 3, so just make sure you're there. I just want to define what it means when we say God's glory. Because I, I think that's, there's a lot of Christian lingo that we use, and we just kind of expect everyone to understand it, but oftentimes we have no idea what we're talking about. So what do we mean when we say God's glory? Let me just give you three things. God's glory often refers to his name. God of glory, king of glory, king of the glory of Israel. In fact, in Ephesians 1 verse 17, we're not even going to get there today, but you'll notice that the Father is called the Father of glory. Glory often also refers to the presence of God. So just where he is. In the Old Testament, we see that the cloud that led Israel throughout the wilderness and that then dwelled on the tabernacle, dwelled on the temple, was often called the glory of God. And they would say the glory of God has come upon us, meaning his presence is here. Also, the third one is glory refers to all that God is. Meaning to glorify God is to praise God for simply being God. To glorify God is to praise him and it is to delight in all that he does. And that's primarily what we're going to be looking at today. That part of glory. Just looking at who he is and praising him for what he has done. And so, uh, so with that definition, that might be helpful as we begin making our way through uh, today. So what I would like to do is invite you to stand as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. One thing we do here uh, at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe God's word alone is our authority. And so we do it to honor God and to love him and to respect him. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 3 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of of his glory. I'm going to pray. Father, Father, we come to you now and we come to this most amazing text. A text that highlights your glory and all that you have done in salvation. A text that is to cause us to 
humble ourselves before you as we just simply lift up our voices and shout praise to you. Lord, I pray that as as we go over this text, the text that you have inspired and given to us, that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us humility, for there is much that that many like to debate about in this text. But God, you have given it to us that we would praise you, that our affections and our emotions would be increased as we better understand who you are. So Father, I pray that as we come to your word, that you use your word as a means of washing us, of cleansing us, of transforming us to become more into your image, into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would praise you, that we would glorify you. Lord, I pray that where there are questions, that you would give us faith and humility to trust in you, and that you would provide answers through the power of your spirit and your word. Lord, we thank you for this time. In your wonderful name, Jesus, Amen. You all may be seated. Um, I want to remind you, uh, you can text questions in. We'll try to answer those uh, at the end of this sermon. Sometimes we are not able to do those, but this time I, I want to try to make sure that we're able to at least do a few questions. I imagine this text will bring up some questions. Um, so as we dig in, now this is a large section, so we're, we're not covering it all in detail as much as we would like, but there's two things that I just want to, to put before you. Uh, number one, there's a Trinitarian pattern. Hopefully you see that. Paul does this at times. In verses 4 through 6, Paul speaks about what the Father has done. Verses 7 through 12, he speaks about what the Son has done. In verses 13 through 14, he speaks about what the Spirit is doing. And so just see that. That's also going to be the framework in which we make our way through the passage. We're first going to look at the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what I want to point to you is verse 3. And that this entire passage is written so that you and I, that the church, would be moved to praise God for the blessings that he's given us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so verses 3 through 14 is one gigantic, theologically loaded sentence, and it's all about praising the glory of God. And so as we read it, there's going to be questions, there's going to be thoughts, there's going to be things that we don't fully understand, and yet Paul is giving this so that you and I, so that the church would be moved to praise God. Look at verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So that's the purpose. So he's going to walk us through these blessings. Blessings the Father has given us. Blessings the Son has given us. Blessings of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is meant to move us to simply praise God for, how, for what he has done for us in salvation. Um, in essence, what Paul is doing here is he's taking us to the Grand Canyon. He's taking us to Mount Everest. He's taking us to the ocean where we just look to the left and right and all we see is the vastness of the ocean. He's taking us and zooming us way out into the galaxy and so that we see there are millions and billions of stars. And at any of those moments when we stand at the Grand Canyon, at Mount Everest, or any of those places, the thing we do not think about is how great we are. 
But what we do at every one of those moments is we see how small we are. And what Paul is doing here is he's simply showing how small we are and how great our God is and what he has done for us in salvation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with the Father, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. We're going to go kind of quick because there's a lot and I realize there's going to be questions, and that's okay. As we go through Galatians, we're going to unpack a lot about this. And in fact, these five solas are all through the book of Galatians. In fact, they're all through the entire 66 books of the Bible. But as we go through Galatians, and even the very first sermon in Galatians, it's going to hit every single one of these solas. Um, so we will answer many of your questions that you have today in future sermons so sorry that they're not going to be answered today, but we'll try to answer some of them, even in the text message, or in the, your, your questions at the end. God the Father. We're going to see at least four things the Father does for us. Four blessings of the Father. Number one, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. If you're going to build a skyscraper that's going to stretch up into the clouds, you have to have a strong foundation. And so the very first thing that Paul wants us to see is that the salvation that we have, it stretches down into the depths of the mind of God. It goes all the way down before creation into eternity where Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Paul goes straight to election. Now some people and you might be one of those people, and it's okay. We get uneasy when we start talking about election. Oftentimes when you hear the word election, you hear the word, well, what about free will and the debate? And, and well, if God chooses, then surely I get to choose also. Or some people, when we bring up election, they say, well, I don't like election. Because that just breeds pride. Because God chooses some and doesn't choose others. But if we notice the context of the passage... It is anything to do about giving pride. What Paul is doing, he's saying everything about salvation is about the glory of God. And it's about what he has done. So he's going to start at the most deepest part of our salvation. Going before creation, before the foundations, into the depths of God's mind. And say, God simply chose people to be saved. Paul brings up election as a means of praising God. There's no debate here. In fact, notice, he doesn't see any need to convince the church of God's sovereign ability to choose, of God's sovereign ability to choose those who will be saved. He makes no defense. He simply just says, to the praise of his glory. In fact, Paul delights in knowing that our salvation is solely rooted in the gracious choosing of of our holy God and Father. And notice the words, um, even as he chose us in him. Well, who's in him? And you're going to see that throughout this passage. That's Christ. Before God created, he had planned for his son to come to die so that we would be saved. And if you notice, all throughout this passage, you have the words in him or through him or some variants of that. And it's showing us that everything, every blessing that God has comes to us in Jesus. Look at it. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Him. Verse 5, through Christ. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him. 
also his blood. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, in him. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in him. Every blessing you or I or anyone will ever have comes through Jesus Christ. There is no blessing of God that anyone will ever experience apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, when you lead someone to Jesus, when you introduce them to Jesus, when you have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus with someone and they receive the gospel, you know what you're doing? You're taking them to the very storehouse of God's riches and you're introducing them to Jesus Christ because he is the one who contains all the riches of of God. He is the treasure chest of God, Jesus Christ. That's the first thing Paul does. He brings us to election. The second blessing, God, choose, God has chosen us in Christ in order to transform us like Christ. Look at verse 4. It continues on. That, so that's a, that's a purpose statement. When you come to the word that, he's going to say, so he chose you to do something And the purpose was that you would be holy and blameless, meaning he's going to transform you, that you would be like his son, Jesus. So what we have here is every person whom God has chosen, he has chosen with the purpose of transforming to his son, Jesus. Which means your sanctification, my sanctification, it's not optional. Like sometimes I think as Christians we kind of wonder, well, it's okay if some people like pursue holiness and some people don't pursue holiness. Like it doesn't really matter. Well, actually, it does, because everyone whom God chooses, He chooses with the purpose of sanctifying. And so, the good news of that is, when you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that God is changing you. You know that God is transforming you. You know that God is going to make you into the image of His Son, Jesus. Christ. So you can rest in the assurance of that. That God has chosen you to sanctify. The way he does that is through his word, through the indwelling power of the spirit, which we'll look at at the end of this passage. He does that by us gathering together as a church that collectively we would encourage one another, rebuke one another, correct one another using the word of God together. Those are all ways in which God has ordained the very means in which he will transform us into the image of his son. And so Paul is simply praising God. You've chosen us and you chose us to transform us into the image of your son. So hear this, if you've believed in Jesus, because God has chosen you, you are no longer a slave to sin. Whatever whatever sin you're battling at this moment, whatever it is, and however big it looks, God has given you victory over that in Jesus Christ. And we can come to it right here, because every single person who has been chosen is being transformed by the glory of God. His purpose and his choosing you is to make you like Jesus, which means you are not a slave to any sin. And that doesn't mean the sin you're facing just goes away. I don't don't want to present that, but there's victory in Jesus. There's strength in Jesus. Number three, and we're going to cover actually three and four in this one right here. So number three and four. God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. I like this one a lot. It's, it's fun. Um, we go to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
So verse 5, he's predestined us for adoption. Now, what's the difference between predestination and election? And this was supposed to be in your notes, but it wasn't because I didn't put it in your notes. Um, so it's my fault. So you might want to write this down because you might at some point wonder, what is the difference between election and predestination? So I'm going to give you the little bit longer definition, and then I'm going to give you the short, consolidated definition. So you choose which one you want to write or write both. Number one, election emphasizes God's freedom in choosing whom he will predestine. So election is emphasizing the freedom that God has when he chooses who he will predestine. Predestination refers to the goal or destiny in which he has chosen them for. Okay, so predestination refers to the goal, the destiny which he chooses people for. So, or the short version, okay, so this might be easy. Election, think choosing. So think choosing, so God chooses. Predestination, think determination. So God chooses to determine and what he does here in this text, he chooses whom he will transform for the purpose of adopting as his child in Jesus Christ, to make a part of his family. You see, salvation is about God choosing to make a holy people for himself. He's determining who he will adopt. So what Paul is doing in these first verses, verses 4 and 5, he chooses he sanctifies, he predestines, and he adopts. And Paul is simply praising God for all of these things. Now, all of these things are what many Christians love to debate about, and Paul is just simply saying, we just bow down before God for these very things. Everything about salvation has been determined before time in the depths of God's grace. Now, you might be thinking at this moment, what do we do? Surely we do something. Surely we, we, we contribute something to this salvation project. Well, Paul gets to that in chapter 2, which we're not going to get to today, but I encourage you to read chapter 2, especially the first four verses or first three verses. Um, and Paul explains that we're spiritually dead. The point is we're not able to save ourselves. The point is, is that we have no hope of saving ourselves. Therefore, our salvation has to fully rest in the sovereignty of our God. Now sometimes, and this is what the Roman Catholic Church had done, um, and what many churches do today, is they characterize sin not so much as, as us being rebellious towards God, but more something that hinders us. Um, it's kind of like we're drowning and we just can't swim. We're, we're just not good swimmers. Or we're skydiving with a parachute but it just doesn't open. We're just kind of having a problem. And, and so we're trying to do the right thing. And if God would just kind of come and, and give us a boost, then with God's boost and our effort, we could be made right. That's how a lot of people talk about salvation. And what they do then is they're bringing in our effort. They're bringing in our works into the equation saying, well, God kind of gets us there. And then we complete the project. But what that fails to do is it fails to account for the way the Bible actually talks about sin. See, the Bible says that we're rebels of God and that we actually don't want to praise God. We're not sitting here trying to praise God, but we're just not strong enough. We're just not good enough. We just need a little help. But rather, what we see going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden is that we actually want the glory of God rather than for God to have it. What we've become is glory thieves, and so 
Because of this, we're rebels with no hope of salvation. In fact, apart from God's grace, we, we don't want salvation. We want to run in the opposite direction of God. This is why every aspect of our salvation must be rooted in the very, in the very sovereignty of God, in the very... Um, glory the very being of god himself and so what does paul say the point of all this is verse six it is to the praise of his glorious grace summary to the praise of his glorious grace and what is the grace of god what is god's glorious grace it's not really a what at all is it it's a who jesus is the grace of god remember All of God's blessings come to us through Jesus. Therefore, all of our praise goes to God through Jesus. Does that make sense? All blessings from God come to us through Jesus. Therefore, all of our praise goes to God through Jesus. Praise to God through His glorious grace. That's how we glorify Him through the grace of God that he's given us. It's through Jesus Christ. So that's the Father. Those are the blessings of the Father. And he goes into these rich doctrines. Next, as we go into verse 7, he's going to now shift, and he wants us to look at the blessings that come to us through the Son. Number one, Jesus has redeemed us through his blood. It says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. You notice our points aren't really ever creative here. Just in case you've ever wondered, our points just usually go straight back to the text. Um, so redemption means to buy back. By dying on the cross, Jesus purchased those whom God had chosen to adopt and make holy. Now, so what we're about to do, we're just going to kind of drop a bomb and we're not going to unpack it. So sorry, um, but we'll get to it later. You might ask a question about this, and if we can, we'll, we'll try to unpack it in some questions later. Um, so who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? Did he die for every single person who has ever lived in this planet? Is that the way the Bible speaks? Is that the way Paul speaks here? No, it's not. Let's go back up. Verse 4, God has chosen before the foundation of the world that he would choose a people. He would choose people whom he would transform and adopt into his family. He's chosen these people far before creation ever came about. Jesus then comes and pays the penalty for those whom God has chosen. You see how all of a sudden we get into lots of debates. Lots of debates comes about when we come into this. Jesus has come to die for those whom God chose to transform and adopt into his family. You see, there's there's your spiritual bomb, and we'll we'll unpack that more later. Um, But that's the first thing that we have. It's the first blessing that Paul mentions is that God has sent his son to redeem those whom he has chosen. Number two, He says, Jesus has provided forgiveness for our trespasses. The problem is, 
with being sinful, we have no way to make ourselves clean. We cannot earn the forgiveness of God because all we do is sin. Like, if you're covered in tar, you can't wipe the tar off of you. You just keep smearing tar everywhere. And that's what happens because we're covered in sin. Everything, inside and out, we're sinful. We have no way of of actually cleansing ourselves. But Jesus comes not only to redeem us from a life of slavery to sin, but he brings about forgiveness for all of our sins. You see, it's not just that Jesus forgives us and takes our grimy slate and, and just wipes it clean, because what would happen if he did that? We would just get it all grimy up again with our sin. But what he does is he gives us, he takes our, our slate of sin, and Jesus takes it to the cross with him, and he pays the penalty of our sin. And then he gives us his righteousness so that we who believe in him would not only be forgiven, but when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So now you see, how does God adopt sinful people? God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. Well, he adopts them because his son has come, paid the penalty, given us his righteousness, so now you and I are covered in the righteousness of Christ, have been declared righteous. That's what we looked at two weeks ago? Last week? Last week. I'm confused on our weeks at this moment. I think that was last week. We were in Romans 3. But he's looked at it so that we'd be declared two weeks ago. Sorry, no, it's two weeks ago. It's all coming back to me. Um, you know, I don't know how many weeks ago it was. <laughs> I have no clue. I was sick Friday. <laughs> just going to blame it on because of my wife. <laughs> but what God does is he transforms us so we'd be righteous. He does that through his son Jesus So how are we adopted? Through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. That's how we become part of the family of God. And now, notice what Paul does in verse 7. He pauses at this moment because he knows what's going to come through your mind and my mind because he's already talked about this redemption and this forgiveness and he knows that we're thinking, so wait, you you mean that God has only chosen to, to forgive those and for his son to die for those whom he has chosen. Well, well, wait a minute. How does this work? And then he goes to verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. He brings us right back to the grace of God, showing, look, you and I, we do not deserve salvation. We do not merit salvation. The only thing you and I contribute to our salvation is a spiritual corpse. That's what we contribute. That's what Ephesians 2 says that we contribute. We have no works of our own, no merit of our own. So do you see how this, what is Paul doing? He's elevating, not elevating, he's highlighting the grace of God, the glory of God, the largeness of God, the massive grace of God, and showing how desperate it is that we needed that. What he's doing is giving us an accurate understanding of who we are in sin and who God is in his very glory, in his very being, and how glorious it is that he chooses to save us who are rebels. It is Jesus who has redeemed us. It is Jesus who has forgiven us. It is Jesus who has given us life. Why? All according to the purpose of God the father that's what we see in verse 9 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That's why he's done this. It's according to his plan, his purpose. The next blessing that comes to us, number three, Jesus is uniting all of creation in him. Verse 10, we see that all things are being united in Jesus. And then to clarify, so so that we would know, what do you mean all things are being united in Jesus? Paul says, things in heaven and things of earth. So the words, what we see is the cross of Jesus. It It has cosmic effects. It's not just about your salvation and my salvation, but it's something that's going to affect all of creation. In verse 10, the words unite all things, what that refers to, it refers to destination or, or purpose. So what Paul is saying is the purpose of all creation, the purpose of your redemption, the purpose is that God is progressively accomplishing is that everything is being brought underneath the headship, the rulership of Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve and they sinned at the garden, they said, we don't want God. We want to rebel against his authority. At that moment, we see all of humanity become sinful and sin spreads throughout all of creation. And in Romans 8, we're told that all of creation is groaning for the day it'll be made new, groaning for the day that it will be restored. And so what we see right here is that God, through Jesus at the cross, is actually taking all of creation and he's bringing everything back underneath his headship, underneath his rule. So once again, it would experience his blessings. G.N. Clark, an English historian, at his inaugural lecture at Cambridge, this is what he said. There is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. I do not believe that any future consummation could make sense of the irrationalities of preceding ages. So so what he says, he says, I look at the world, I see all the problems in the world, and he says, there's nothing that can make sense of this. He says, there's so many things, there's so many horrific stories, there's so many painful tragedies that have occurred. There's so many irrationalities that have occurred in this world that there's nothing that makes sense. There's no grand story. There's nothing that's bringing all of this to an end. Well, he's wrong. And this verse proves him wrong. This verse provides comfort when we see that there is no comfort. When Christians are being killed, In other countries, when thousands are killed in an earthquake or in a tsunami, when it appears that there's no justice being carried out in certain parts of the world, when people are crying out for the right to kill unborn baby, it's this verse. It's this verse right here, verses 9 and 10, that tells us that everything is progressively coming underneath the headship of of Jesus Christ. We might not know how. We might not know when, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel of darkness. Jesus has come not only to free you and me from sin, but all of creation from sin. And so what this blessing is, this blessing is showing that not only have you been chosen 
to be saved, to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, that you'd be adopted into his family, but that there is a day coming when all of creation will be made new, there will be no sin, it will be removed, burned up, there will be a new heavens and new earth where there will be no sun because God's presence will be there, giving light to all of creation, and you and I will be there basking in the glory of God. And it says in Revelations that we will actually see the face of God. That's the glory that we're being moved toward. And so Paul, at this point, he's saying, there's hope that comes to us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. When you look at creation, when you look at CNN and Fox and all of your news networks, it looks like there is no hope. And here the Bible is saying, no, there is a story. And it actually began before creation. Into the eternal depths of God's mind and his grace that he had chosen to one day send his son to die for a people, to restore a creation under his rule that God would be glorified through his son. And what is the purpose of it? Again, verse 12, to the praise of his glory. It's all about God's glory. One last blessing that we have there, verse um, or number four, Jesus has given us an inheritance according to the purpose of God. Jesus has given us an inheritance. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. What is our inheritance? That's a good question. We've been given an inheritance. Well, what is it? It's everything that Jesus has. It's everything that Jesus has. In Romans 8, we are said to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. One of the gospel truths that this passage hits on and is probably the greatest truth in all of God's word is the fact that we come to what we call the union of Christ. Is that by faith in Christ, we become united to Christ. That we are in him, he is in us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He takes our sin and pays the penalty of it. Now when God sees us, he sees his son Jesus. Where Jesus is, we are also. We are told that right now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And in one sense, we too right now sit at the right hand of the Father. Paul is showing everything we have comes to us in Jesus. And this inheritance comes to us according to the very purpose of God. In the depths of creation, in the mind of God, God said, I want to create a people and I'm going to give them everything. I'm going to share my glory with them. I will hold nothing back from them. Now this isn't so God becomes more glorious. He's always been glorious and he's always shared in his glory because he's a Trinitarian God. But he does it out of the overflow of his love, out of the overflow of his grace, out of the overflow of his glory. He says, I want to share it. So therefore he creates. And he doesn't only give a part of himself, but he gives his very glory, which is Jesus Christ, so that we would, we would be united to Jesus, the glory of God, and share in the inheritance of God. And why does he do it? Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Let me ask you, who else should, he, should we glory in? As Paul's walking through this passage, highlighting the gospel, who else would we glory in? You? 
Me? Is that who we should glory in? What grounds would we have to praise anyone or anything other than our eternal God? None. Every aspect, every step, every ounce, every part of our salvation, Paul is showing comes from the very grace of God in Jesus Christ. The only thing left for us to do is praise him. I'm the one born a sinner. I'm the one who in chapter 2, we read is spiritually dead and is a child of wrath. I'm the one who needs to be forgiven. I'm the one who needs to be redeemed. I'm the one who has no needs. I'm the one who has no resources. I'm the one who has no abilities, abilities to save myself. I mean, isn't that who I am? Isn't that who we are? That's how the Bible speaks. Glory alone through Jesus to save. He's the only one to save. He's the only one able to save. To God be all glory and praise. Now we move to the Spirit. And we see the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. We see the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance of all who have been chosen in Christ. Verse 13, we read that all who have believed in Jesus Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We've been sealed. Well, in Ephesians 4.30, we're told the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. So it appears that the Holy Spirit comes upon those whom God has saved, whom Jesus has redeemed, and whom Jesus has forgiven for the purpose of sealing us so that we would be with God on the day that he returns. We also see in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of of it. So the Holy Spirit comes to guarantee our salvation before God and for ourselves. Now, I want to read two verses, actually probably three. I think these are the ones that are going to be on the slide. I just want you to think about why this is so amazing and why this is such a blessing for you and me. Luke twelve fifty one. This is what Jesus says. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And after that, he goes on to say, I have come so that father would be turned against son, mother against daughter. And he goes against all this familial language saying about how families will be ripped apart by the gospel. And so that oftentimes, the gospel doesn't necessarily always bring people together, but it separates. And that's something you and I, we don't always understand a lot, but if we were born into a Muslim country, and we had Muslim family, we would very much know that. For to become a Christian there is to often be killed or be threatened by death and to be removed from your family at all. Matthew 5.11. This is part of the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What we see is that God, saved, God chooses to save people through his son Jesus, but he doesn't promise an easy life, does he? Like when we read through the New Testament, we don't really see Christians getting an easier life, do we? Look at Paul. He gets beat a lot. In fact, Paul, in 2 Timothy 3.12, this is what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now, Now think about it. 
how can we praise God in times of difficulty, in times of pain, in times of suffering, in times of turmoil, when families are being ripped apart, if we don't even know he's our God? How do we praise him? How do we say, praise to you, God, if I don't know he's mine, if I don't know that I am his? How do we praise him? We can't. Because we'll always be worried, well, have I done something that's removed me from his grace? Am I not good enough? Do I need to try harder? Do I need to work harder to earn my salvation? Maybe all of these things are coming to me because I'm not really saved, not really good enough, and I still have farther to go. Paul, in these last verses, he wants to show the absolute security that you and I have in Jesus Christ. God does not give us a thing to seal us. He gives us a person, the Holy Spirit, who wraps around us and holds us in Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people who say, well, that's really good for you to say that, but we can still leave Jesus, right? Like, he won't let us go, but we can walk away from him. Now just, let's think about the flow of the argument here. Think about the text. God chooses with the purpose to transform you and adopt you into his family. Jesus dies for you, paying the penalty for your sins that you would be forgiven, brought into his family. The Holy Spirit is now wrapped around you. There's no one leaving the Father. Why? Because no one wants to leave the Father. We've been made alive in Jesus, that we would see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see him beautiful. We see him as holy and glorious and amazing. We never want to walk away from Jesus. It's like when you're staring at the Grand Canyon. You just stare at it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Your cell phone's ringing, but you don't care about the cell phone at that moment because you're simply just amazed at the beauty that is before you. That's what happens as we see Jesus. We've been transformed to become like Jesus. We don't want to walk away from Jesus. Paul gives us this passage in verses 13 to 14 as a blessing to show us our security in Jesus. I mean, Paul's in prison writing this letter. You know that, right? Ephesians, it's a prison epistle. He's writing it in prison. He's suffering for the gospel, and his present circumstances don't cause him to doubt his salvation. Why? Because he's the Apostle Paul? Because he's awesome? Because he's all the one that we want to be? Like, right? Like, anyone ever ask you, who's your favorite person in the Bible? We all say Jesus. Okay, other than Jesus, Paul. Like, right? Because we're like, he's awesome. Well, is it because he's so cool? It's because he did all these awesome works? Is it because, like, he just has much bigger faith than us? No. It's because he knows his salvation has its roots in the eternal mind of God, achieved by the death of Jesus and applied and secured by the Holy Spirit. That's why. And so what does Paul do? What does Paul tell us to do? Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. He glorifies God. Now, so many people, we get to theology and they say, Look, theology's boring. Like, it's just for simple academia, for pastors. That's why pastors have big libraries. That's why you walk in my room, I have a big library, like reading books. But come on, for, for us normal Christians, 
we don't really need theology, right? I mean, we're, we're fine without this theology. Well, are we? It's this deep theology that results in this deep praise of God. It's this deep theology that when Paul's in prison and everything crumbles around him, what happens? He still praises God. Another example of this is Acts 16. Paul and Silas, they're thrown in prison after they've been beaten with rods for the gospel. Now what would you do if you were beaten with rods for the sake of the gospel? And you're thrown in prison in stocks. Well, if you're Paul... And Silas, you start singing and praising God. Isn't that what you would do? And what do the other listeners do at that moment? They listen to God. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, that's a good time. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to him. This is what Paul's advocating for. This is what happens when we hold on to glory alone. When we abdicate glory alone, we lose this kind of theology. We lose the glory of God. And when suffering and pain and trials come, we don't have any type of understanding how to operate at that moment. So if you want to say theology is for the pastors and only a certain type of people. That terminology is nowhere used in the Bible. And if that's the way you want to live, then you're going to find a great deal of suffering. And not suffering just simply because of the circumstances, but suffering is because you don't know how to handle it. Because you don't know the God who has saved you. You don't know the immense amount of blessings of the treasure chest of Jesus that has come to you all by the grace of God and nothing by your works. Paul is calling us into an understanding of God that changes everything, that changes the way we handle every type of situation that comes into our lives. It's theology like this that causes us to explode in joy to God. It's this kind of theology. Without this, you have superficial theology that every time you leave the doors is emptied out. Because God works all things for his glory, we know that he will carry out his plan of redemption. Because God does all things for his glory, we know that he will always act perfectly righteous. Because God does all things for his glory, we know that he uses all circumstances, even evil, even pain, even suffering, even death, as a means for our good and his glory. Because God does things for his glory, we know that there is no one he cannot save. Now, I just want to remind you, is there anyone you're praying for right now? Or is there anyone you're not praying for because you think there's no way that guy can be saved? Think the Apostle Paul. Before Paul, he was Silas. As Silas, he loved to kill Christians. God loves to save people. The world thinks no one can be saved. Why? It shows his glory. I encourage you, pray for everyone in your family. Pray for everyone on your street. Pray for the guy you think is least likely to come to know Jesus. Why? Because God loves to show his glory. God does all things for his glory. Therefore, we know that he will transform and adopt all those he has chosen in Christ. Because God does all things for his glory, we know that we are eternally secure. God does not lose what he has chosen. God does not lose what he has chosen. In verse 17, Paul's simply going to say, I'm going to pray that you, the church, to the Ephesians and also to us today, that we would better understand this God. He says, I want you to know 
this God. I want you to see this God. I want you to understand this God. I want your eyes to be open, that you'd be enlightened to the understanding, to the knowledge, to the grace of this God, so that everything in our life would be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, Father, we've gone through a whirlwind of a text a text that is so deep. A text that God baffles us in many ways. A text that humbles us. A text that raises questions. But God, it is a text that highlights your glory. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, that whatever questions, whatever issues we have with this text, we would not allow them to, allow, to mess, to help us. We would not allow them to make us miss the point of this text. That you are glorious and you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And everything in life, everything in the gospel is about your glory. God, we praise you. We thank you that you are concerned most about your glory. For when you are concerned most about your glory, that is good for us. Because that has resulted in the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to the cross, that we who believe in you would be saved and justified and declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for your glory alone. May we never miss that. God, I pray today that you would increase our hunger for you, that we would desire to go deep into your word to understand these texts, that God, our affections, our emotions would be increased in you as we have seen your glory, as we have seen your beauty today. In your name, Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm gonna have a seat for a moment if you'd like. I think my voice is leaving me. All right, we're going to try to do four questions. Fairly quick, and luckily they're all very easy. They're not. Um, wrong. Um, is everyone who God has chosen going to praise him, or even though he has chosen us, do we still choose? <laughs> awesome. Um, so the question is, is, if God chooses us, do we still choose him? Yes. No, yes. Um, we choose him because he has chosen us. That, that's how God's word speaks of it. Um, when we start talking about free will and like our choosing of God, um, God's word doesn't ever present human responsibility and God's sovereignty as enemies of one another. In fact, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, these are friends. Let's treat them as friends and let's not make them enemies. Meaning, where God is showing himself as sovereignty and when there is human responsibility, these aren't meant to oppose one another, but they work well together. Does that kind of make sense? So yes, God is sovereign in his choosing, and because he has chosen, we will choose. And so yes, there is a sense in which we choose, but only because God's grace has moved in us that we could. Remember Ephesians 2, we're spiritually dead. There's no way we can do anything unless first the Spirit comes upon us and makes us alive. Um, so yeah, really good question. Um, 
Number two, if God has already chosen who will be saved, what's the point of praying for specific people? Um, good question. So is there, do we need to do anything? I mean, if God chooses everything, does that kind of remove any responsibility that we have? No. Actually, God says throughout his word, he accomplishes his will through us. That's the amazing thing. That's the humbling thing. God chooses imperfect vessels like you and me as the means of accomplishing his will. When Paul is at uh, Corinth and he is uh, sharing the gospel, Paul says, or God says to Paul, I have many people who are going to be saved. At that moment, Paul doesn't say, great, since you're going to save them, I'm going to go somewhere else. But rather, we're told he stayed there for 18 more months preaching the gospel because he was confident God was going to save people. So God's sovereignty doesn't remove human responsibility, but what it does, it undergirds human responsibility. It gives us strength. The only reason we go into other parts of the world to preach the gospel is because we know people will be saved. Why? Because where the gospel is preached, there is life. And we know that God will give life. And one day there will be a people from all nation, from every nation, every tribe and t- tongue and language at the throne of God. Because God's sovereignty has ordained it, we know that his word will bring it about. So that, again, our, our responsibility and God's sovereignty work together. They're not enemies and we don't want to make them enemies because God's word doesn't do that. Those are good questions. Um, number two, three, Um, How can Jesus die for some people? I thought he died for everyone. So there's a big way to answer that, and there's a lot of different theological points we go through. Um, One, one simple one. Um, If if you were to go get pulled over today, and you got a speeding ticket on your way home, and uh, you then paid the fine for that speeding ticket, and then the state called you later and said, you owe us money for the speeding ticket, what would you say? I already paid for it. You can't actually charge me twice for the same crime. I paid for it. Check your books. And they go, oh, yep, you have already been paid. We can't charge you twice. Um, If Jesus at the cross pays the punishment for every single person who has ever died, then how can anyone ever go to hell if the punishment has been paid for them? At that moment, the father would say, well, I know Jesus died for you, but it wasn't sufficient enough, so now I'm still going to condemn you to hell. So that, that's one argument. It's kind of the double jeopardy argument. Um, there's many other ways to look at that, many other parts of Scripture we can go through. Um, it's a huge question. Again, this text is one that brings up lots of questions that causes us to wrestle with the depths of, of really God's grace in his mind. Uh, number four, does God's grace save us because he wants to be glorified? I think that person is saying, like, do we add to the glory of God? Like, is God saying, man, I really want to be glorified, so I'm going to make creation, and then I'll have someone to glorify me. Um, No. And the reason we say no to that is because we don't have a God like Allah, a singular monotheistic God. In Islam, there's there's a, a singular God, just Allah. And before creation, they say he only existed by himself. Therefore, he was lonely. Therefore, why he created was to have people and to have people to rule over. Therefore, well, that's another story. So, but when we get to Christianity, we have a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit. 
And so he has perfectly always lived in community with one another, sharing in his glory, sharing in his joy, experiencing the fullness of love for all of eternity. He's never lacked anything. He's never lacked community. He's never lacked glory. The reason he creates is the overflow of his grace. It's the overflow of his glory, not for the need for it, but for the delight in his glory. He chooses to create so that others might delight also in his glory. That's what's so amazing about having a Trinitarian God. So I know those were four questions, really fast answers. Um, You could text more and maybe we'll answer more on the blog and maybe answer more in upcoming weeks. But I encourage you, be reading Galatians as we make our way into Galatians now. That's where we're going to be um, for the next quite a few weeks. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then I think we're just going to dismiss. Uh, yes. I was thinking if there's anything else. I don't think there is. Let's pray. Father, Father, you are a glorious God. And God, there are many questions that we have when we begin thinking about your sovereignty, about your grace, about what it means that you've chosen, about what it means that you've sent your son to redeem. And and God, may we be okay with mystery. May we be okay with not understanding everything right now. But God, I pray, increase our desire, increase our love for you. And that as we continue to read your word, as we continue to fellowship with other believers, as we're gathered together in large settings and in small settings, give us understanding through your text through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would better grasp who you are and that we, as Paul does here, would do everything to the praise of your glory because everything you do is to the praise of your glory. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gospel of grace. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Have a wonderful day.